The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an unusually warm uh, day in uh, February, or February itself has been... It's a little chilly, but it's nice and sunny, isn't it? It's nice and sunny. We don't have snow. Usually in Chicago in February, there's... uh, you know, a, a foot of snow on the ground. And this February and this January, there's been a very, very, uh, not a tremendous amount of snow. Right. I think that's a very good omen. You grew up here in the Chicago I area. I grew up in the Chicago area. So you remember that we always to, had snow on the ground. Yes, the blizzard of 76, all these blizzards mm-hmm. that have hit us over time. Indeed, right indeed. Okay, well, there's a lot to get to here on The Steady Investor. We want okay. to talk, you know, how we usually do. We talk uh, current events for the first part of it and kind of see how that all folds into being a responsible investor and, and take your expertise as well. Okay. Um, and first of all, I wanted to say, uh, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, you can call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago. That number is 800-918-3114. Uh, you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, for more information, email us at info at zimwealth, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com, or visit our website, zimwealth.com. Also, to call in the show to ask a question of Mitch Zacks today, you can call 866-472-5790. We'd be happy to take your call. Um, So, Mitch. Yes. The Fed has gotten through the first of its meetings in 2017, Mm -hmm. didn't raise rates, not a surprise, uh, following a quarter point raise in December that brought rates to between 50 and 75 basis points. Now, the Trump rally promised a real race ahead for the U.S. economy, and the December rate hike seemed to at least partially uh, be in response to this, lest mm-hmm. inflation rise a little faster than the economy could accommodate. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that uh, uh, summation? The uh, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. One is to effectively reduce inflation, and the other is to uh, keep employment near its maximum levels. Right. And these are conflicting mandates because the way that you reduce inflation is you raise interest rates, which causes uh, effectively a less chance of inflationary pressures building. It slows down the economy. It kind of stops it up like a sponge. Like a brake on a car. Right. But doing so also uh, tends to increase unemployment. So the Federal Reserve is trying to find the happy medium between uh, keeping rates low and accelerating the economy and sort of raising rates and stopping inflation from materializing but decelerating the economy. Okay. That being said, a few months ago, maybe six months ago, prior to the election, the biggest concern investors were facing was the potential impact of a deflationary environment. 
The concern was that not that prices were going to be going up, but prices were going to be going down. You started to see sovereign uh, uh, countries' uh, interest rates go negative. You started to see downward pressure on prices uh, due to global uh, labor source increases. Mm -hmm. As the globalization occurred, the increase in the labor force put downward pressure on wages. You started to see automation uh, put downward pressure on prices. Uh, You started to see information technology uh, the internet put downward pressure on prices. People can source uh, goods from almost anywhere in the world. Uh, so as a result, it's harder for merchants or, or people who are producing goods to raise their prices. That being said, I, I am not surprised that the Federal Reserve is erring on the side of keeping rates uh, too low for too long and accelerating the the economy. There's a political reason they want to do this. They don't want to uh, interfere with the administration's goal of growing the economy. And uh, there's also sort of a dovish reason to do it. If you think of uh, Federal Reserve chairmen, they have these tool mandates, keep inflation low and keep unemployment low, uh, increase employment and uh, decrease inflation. And to the extent that the Federal Reserve uh, chairman is sort of on the left wing of the political spectrum, they're more concerned about jobs okay. than they are about inflation. The more concerned about jobs, that actually you know, affects people's lives. The inflation issue hurts banks. So when there's a large degree of inflation, if you think of the bank, they're lending at a fixed rate. They're lending at a mortgage uh, to someone to buy a house at X percent, uh, 3%, 4%, 5%, whatever it is, if interest rates start rising dramatically, they're being paid back with dollars that are worth less in the future. So the more you try and keep inflation down, the more you help the banks. The more you try and keep unemployment down, the more you help uh, the working person effectively. Okay. Yellen is more on the left-wing side. So she's more concerned and she's written articles about how following recessions, uh, it's very, very hard for people to enter the labor force and their entire lifetime earnings are depressed. If you look at people and if they end, if they haven't entered the labor force in uh, 2009, their lifetime earnings are going to be lower on average than the lifetime earnings of someone who enters the labor force in 2012, simply because they enter the labor force in the midst of a very, very bad recession. Right. So as a result, Yellen has a bias towards wanting to create more jobs and let inflation run a little bit hotter than it, uh, it, it might naturally do. Okay. And so I, I, I anticipate the combination of Yellen's leanings along with the political pressures being put on the Federal Reserve in its entirety is going to cause them to err on the side of raising rates uh, less than what uh, potentially the market is expecting. Okay, well, this leads me nicely into the question I wanted to ask, which is what would it take for the Fed to increase the to 75 to 100 basis point level? Uh, would it be more inflation concerns? You would, you would have to really see a heat up of the U.S. economy and the global economy. All right. And you would have to see a reduction of risk. With the new administration, there's an increased amount of like political turmoil, it feels like. And I think that affects itself in the Federal Reserve. They said, well, there are all these risks that could occur. We don't know what's going to happen to global trade mm-hmm. when these protectionist policies are passed. Right. Uh, we're not quite sure if the U.S. starts engaging in a uh, – if all the countries start engaging in a trade war and try and devalue their currency – Right to make right. their goods more attractive, how that affects uh, Europe, how that's going to affect Asia. So th- there seems to be a heightened level of economic 
uncertainty uh, due to political changes. And I think that is going to express itself in uh, keeping rates lower for a longer period of time. But it's a, it's a combination of Yellen's leanings and it's a combination of the institution. If you think of the Federal Reserve not as Janet Yellen but as an institution, as an entity, and what does it want? It wants independence. It does not want to come under the uh, sort of review of the Congress. The more that they can agree with the people in power, the less likely there's going to be some sort of conflict. Okay. So if the if yelling, such as what, like an audit of the so Fed, audit of the Fed, less independence, more oversight of the Federal Reserve, which is, I, in my mind, a very, very bad thing uh, for the economy and for the markets. Uh, one of the benefits of the U.S. system is that the Federal Reserve is completely independent of the political process. So the decision whether to raise rates or buy bonds, uh, there, there, there's some uh, there's some interaction, but it's made to try and keep the economy. Uh, growing uh, and keep inflation relatively low. So, so in, what I do think, what I do expect to happen, is the mindset of investors is going to start to change. Whereas six months, seven months, a year ago, the primary concern was what is going to happen at the Federal Reserve. Are they going to keep uh, interest rates low? They've already started to raise. Maybe they'll raise twice. Maybe they'll raise three times. Right. Maybe they'll raise four <clears throat> times this year. I expect the lower end, but it's going to be less of a huge impact on the market. And what's going to start to drive the market more are corporate earnings and whether you start to see companies report earnings that are greater than expectations. Okay. And that brings us right to we're in the middle of uh, Q4 earnings season right now. It yeah. looks to be as strong as can be expected. I but don't know if you'd agree with just that. Starting, just starting <laughs> off. I mean, we're not, you know, we, 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 how many, we've had a couple companies report, but I think we're, we're getting to the, if you think that the... Uh, if you assume the quarter ends in December, we're in the beginning of February. So like January 15th is about when it starts. That's off, right. That's right. Okay. So and now we have, I think, 500 companies yes. that are reporting this week alone. Got it. Including, so, you know, we had Facebook yesterday. Right. We've got Amazon after the bell today. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I think that seems to be when you were talking about um, uh, retail sales kind of coming under uh, – uh, from where the internet uh, companies were actually yes. uh, looking to make some gains. It seemed to me like you were talking directly about Amazon. Amazon seems to be grabbing, it, it, there seems to be this concept of, I want to say, sort of a natural monopoly developing with Amazon, that it has to do with distribution of goods. And if they can distribute goods cheaper than your regular retailer, and they can, and people can adopt this concept of buying the good online. It's going to put a lot of downward pressure on a lot of retailers. You look at companies like Macy's. There's some uh, rumors that Macy's is is looking to be sold. Uh, it's going to put these retailers under some pressure, uh, but that is somewhat reflected already in the marketplace. Like okay. Amazon's pretty expensive, and these retailers are getting relatively cheap. And so the question is not whether that occurs, but does it occur greater to a greater extent than people are expecting? Right. And sometimes with these disruptive technologies, it's hard for people to un- to to accept or to see how disruptive the technology is going to be. And a good example of that is what happened with uh, Blockbuster. You saw Blockbuster uh, come under tremendous pressure from Netflix and from sort of uh, you know, digital distribution of media. Right. Up until the very very end there were value investors running into Blockbuster saying the company is undervalued and my goodness. And the reason is everyone had as their anchor this, what Blockbuster was 
prior to the digital disruption. And right. uh, you, you, you could see that with some of these uh, retailers occurring, that there's such a mindset amongst investors, and investors tend to be older, uh, you know, they, they tend to be a little bit older and farther removed from technological change than sort of the mainstream uh, mainstream uh, people in, in, in the country. And there tends to be an anchoring on what things looked like in the past. There are these malls. People go to the malls. The mall owners make uh, is a tremendous owner to have, a tremendous company to have because the rents have to be paid to them. The big box retailers then have uh, a barrier to entry because there's a limited number of these malls available and they have the access to the malls. So geographically, they have the focus. Right. And a lot of what you saw in terms of Sears uh, being trying to be taken over by a large hedge fund was based on that mindset of the value of Sears being in the retail, the real estate of Sears, and that real estate uh, being a unique uh, good, that it could not be duplicated. That if you had that anchor store, maybe if Sears goes bankrupt, you just reinvent it, and you can sell that real estate to someone else. Then there's a technological change, and even though Amazon was still around when Sears was was kind of taken over by this hedge fund, uh, the, the technological change accelerated it, and now it's not out of the realm of possibility that malls are going to really come under pressure. Hmm. And 20, 30 years from now, as technology increases and as uh, people can essentially buy almost any retail good online at an incredibly uh, lower price with more selection, with greater customer service, et cetera, what is the reason to, to take uh, two hours of someone's day and go to the mall and buy the good on, uh, buy the good in person? Well, there's certain goods you have to buy in person. But the general idea is that there is this technological change occurring, and it should put downward pressure on retailers. And if I had to sort of uh, predict from from uh, a thousand feet, my guess is that the technological change might be being underestimated by the market as opposed to overestimated. Okay. That being said, Amazon is a very expensive stock, right. and you have to have things. The earnings are, are pretty weak. Uh, it is a bet and on an idea that the disruption continues to happen and they become sort of the monopolistic provider of goods in the United States. And CEO Jeff Bezos has proven time and again that he doesn't really care about quarterly profits so much as he does uh, bringing in more revenue streams, more revenue per quarter, which is annexing more of the market. Which is very contrary to financial theory. Like if you you talk to sort of uh, an academic and you say, well, uh, what happens when a company starts expanding into all these different areas? Uh, they start using the profits from their monopolistic activity on distributing books uh, to start building uh, tablets. They say that's the craziest thing in the world. The, mm-hmm. the most imp- what you would do as an investor is you would rather the proceeds be distributed to you as a dividend or a share buyback, mm-hmm. and then you make the decision. You'll then go and buy someone who's producing a, a laptop, or you'll go and buy someone who's producing a tablet, and you will buy someone who then is uh, you'll buy a company that's delivering streaming uh, digital uh, data effectively to go after the Netflix. To go after the market. Netflix, right? As opposed to trying to have one company do it in its entirety. So it's very unusual. It, it it's almost like a conglomerate strategy. And these the traditional analysis is that conglomerates do not create shareholder value, they destroy it. They spent most of the 70s uh, putting these conglomerates together under the auspices that the management would be able to unlock value. The management of GE is so great that if we just buy these unrelated finance companies and these unrelated medical imaging companies mm-hmm. and these industrial companies, we put it together, GE just knows how to manage things so well, they can unlock greater value than these things are worth on their own. 
And the answer is uh, what, what happened over time is the conglomerates tended not to work and they tended not to generate the same shareholder value. And it was a banking concept that was used to generate investment banking revenue. Okay. So they put all these things together and then they spent the uh, 80s taking them all apart with the, uh, you know, uh, hostile takeovers saying that the sum of the parts is greater than the sum of the some of the parts is greater than the whole. Right. And so. I look right, at that so and moving I, the other right, I look at that and I see Amazon's strategy as not being a positive one. I do believe that more shareholder value would be created if the proceeds were returned to investors as dividends or share buybacks and the diversification was done on the investment side instead of in the corporation. That okay. being said, Amazon did sort of, I don't want to say stumble, or they pioneered this concept of uh, cloud computing and providing uh, resources to people who are sort of renting the servers uh, to uh, essentially uh, provide cloud activity. And that was a new model that then all these other large technology companies started to to move towards. Effectively. Right, that's true. They did kind of lead the market. They led the market there. So so it's, it's, a, it's an example of where the historical analysis did not hold or has not held up until this time. It remains to be seen, yeah. right? It really does remain to be seen whether a policy, and I, I looked at the same way of Microsoft moving into the Xbox space, is that they're taking profits from a monopolistic activity, which is owning the operating system, mm-hmm. and they're going in a direction that they have, you know, that's nothing to do. But then over, Not a lot of synergies there. There's not a lot of synergies. There's not a lot of reason why... That would why investors would not be better off having the proceeds returned as a dividend or a share buyback, and then going out and buying that type of company themselves. Right. And 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 I believe that's the case. But I believe also what's going on is the monopolistic positions of some of these tech companies is so uh, dominant that they're able to engage in this empire building and still grow the earnings over time. And the reason is that these monopolies came about due to technological change as opposed to problems in antitrust law or something of that sort. Okay. All right. Well, I think we can like leave it there. We have about another minute or so. We got another minute. Um, let me just bring in real quick then. Yeah. Amazon is doing another thing that seems counter, uh, where everything's going away from retail stores. They're actually going into retail stores. It's, it's, see, that's what I'm saying. So it doesn't, so it, it, as an investor, if you want to buy a retail store that has a physical store presence, find a company that has a physical store presence. If you want to buy someone who's an online retailer, buy the online retailer. If the online retailer is generating higher profits, take the profits from the online retailer as the investor and deploy it uh, by buying the physical store. Yeah. By having the company do both, the traditional response is it's wasting resources. That they're right. they're they're spending money on retail stores. And why are they able to do regular retailing better than anyone else? The answer is they may or may not, uh, but they're able to generate these monopolistic profits and these other sources of the business. And those are so strong and so protected uh, that they can grow the entity, even wasting this money with empire expansion effectively. Okay. Well, Mitch, let's uh, leave it there for a minute. We're going to take a short break and uh, have a, a word from our sponsors. But please stick with us. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. We'll be right back after this. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zats.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zats.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Gaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zax, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. We've had a nice little discussion so far on Q4 earnings, what to expect from Amazon, but let's, we're going to move on now. Uh, in the midst of this Q4 earnings season, we also see uh, this is a big week for uh, jobs yeah. numbers. So we saw the ADP private sector jobs right. numbers come out yesterday. Jobless claims came out today, and we've got the big non-farm payroll report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics tomorrow. Uh, let's start with yesterday's ADP uh, private sector jobs. Uh, posted 246,000 new jobs, mm-hmm. way above the 160, 170 expected by analysts. Uh, don't know if there's anything to make of that right now, but how would that lead one, as an economist, as a, as a market analyst, uh, to look toward the uh, non-farm payroll uh, numbers tomorrow uh, which have remained about 170, I want to say. You, you would expect if the ADP number is higher than expectations to be somewhat upward pressure on the uh, on, on the regular BLS number. To what extent? To what extent? Uh, there, there, there's less correlation than you would you would anticipate. I've seen many cases where the uh, ADP number is stronger and the BLS number is weaker. Generally speaking, it's very very hard to use macroeconomic data uh, to trade on. So it's very, very okay. difficult unless you're trading uh, sort of currencies or sort of the yield curve. It's very, very difficult to trade on economic data in the market. Then the reason is if the jobs numbers are picking up because companies are growing and earnings are growing, the economy is picking up, mm-hmm. that information is going to be reflected in stock prices. So what happens is you're trying to look at macro data that is very, very delayed, uh, inconsistent, not 100% accurate all the time. Right. And you're trying to then use that to trade uh, or to purchase or determine whether to buy an equity. And the people who are deciding whether to buy or sell that equity are looking, they're, 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 yes, they're looking at labor data, but they really are looking for things that are very, very specific for that company. So right. price discovery, like the way the market incorporates information, comes 
from the micro level to the macro level as opposed to the opposite way. So what happens is if you want to know if the labor, if you're going to have a good GDP number, for instance, it's better to look at the market than to try and do time series analysis of historical uh, GDP growth. And the reason is that if the stocks are growing, are being bought up, it's because there's individual information about those equities that's indicating that they're they're more uh, more likely to be purchased essentially. So it's very very difficult to trade on macro data. The the, the macro data I've seen that that trades on is very very specific things such as auto sales and determining right. uh, who has a greater percentage, who benefits more Ford or GM from increased auto sales because auto sales always uh, go from where they're where they're selling to what they're not selling and which has cars in that area and then trying to determine whether you go long uh, Ford or short GM. It is very, very difficult to make broad ma- broad uh, stock market calls based on macroeconomic data. There's almost no statistical ability to do so. And the reason is what determines stock prices is not whether the ADP number is going to be high or low. It's whether that underlying company is going to have earnings that are higher or lower than expected and whether interest rates are going to go higher or lower than expected. Okay. Those are the only two questions that matter. And the fact that the ADP number is strong, does that mean that interest rates are going to be higher than expected? We have no idea. Well, right. Uh, right. So it doesn't really tell us whether it, 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 so the extent it affects interest rates, that's fine, but the Federal Reserve is going to affect it more and that already happened essentially. Yeah. And that's why you don't see the market as the Federal Reserve's uh, sort of is, is telegraphing to the market, they're in a rate tightening uh, sort of scenario. The responses to the underlying jobs numbers are going to become more and more muted in the marketplace. Okay. Well, but people do pay close attention. They pay very close attention because it gets to this investor's worst enemy, too much information. Uh, But it it does not have a tremendous amount of meaning towards the market. And what what I can look for is look in uh, March of 2009. The market at that point was the best time to buy over the past 20 years, in March of 2009. When everybody thought the sky was falling. And then so, but it was also when all the economic data was very, very weak. Right, right? of course, yeah. So it wasn't that, okay, so what happened is the market was pricing in expectations of earnings growth and expectations of interest rate growth, both of which were wrong. Okay, so the expectations that earnings would have continued to decline and they didn't, they began to recover. Mm-hmm. The expectation is that interest rates would eventually start to rise once the earnings recovered and you're never going to get it. And interest rates stayed low for a much, much longer period of time than people were expecting. That seems so to they, describe- it surprised on the interest rate side mm-hmm. and it surprised on the earnings side. And that's what propels the market higher. So the question is, if the ADP number comes in slightly greater than expected or lower than expected, the BLS, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, comes in better or less than expected, how does that affect uh, stock prices? You have to ask the question, does it cause earnings to come in better? Or did earnings come in better or worse than expected? Did interest rates come in better than worse than expected? Interest rates, it's harder to surprise on because there's this massive activity from the market on the fixed income side setting the interest rate. So what it really comes down to is do with the earnings surprise and your, the earnings, the, the market is going to determine whether the earnings are going to surprise prior to looking at the macroeconomic data. So what happens is the company's are, earnings are better than expected. They hire more people. 
uh, investors respond to it, and then the macroeconomic data shows on the quarter an increased BLS number. Uh, so it's, it's not more... the opposite way. It's not that, oh, look, all these people got increased, all these people were hired. My goodness, uh, you're going to see an increase of, of sales at McDonald's because now you have people who were unemployed all of a sudden becoming employed. You're going to see increased car sales. The opposite happens. You see the increased car sales. You see the increased activity at McDonald's. And then the result of that is the stock prices of McDonald's and Ford move. And then the BLS number comes out. So it's reverse in terms of how the market assimilates information. It always comes from the individual stock upward as opposed from the top down. And that's why as an investor, it is extremely important or you should be wary of investors who say that they are top down macro investors. It's almost impossible to do. It sounds very exciting and you can spin a very nice story on why we think the consumer discretionary sector is going to do very well. You're almost always better doing it from a micro uh, perspective by focusing on the underlying stocks and looking that when you construct the portfolio on the underlying stocks, what does that tell you about where you think uh, what, what is going on with the macro economy? Well, it sounds like you're describing in essence that the equities market is a forward indicator, which it we is. know. And then so the BLS numbers, for instance, are more of a lagging indicator. That's exactly it, Mark. The, the BLS, the uh, jobs numbers are all lagging indicators. The market is a forward indicator. The problem is the market is not 100% accurate forward indicator. And you can see the market do very well and us go into recession. You can see the market come down and then expansion begin to occur. Like we saw in 2009. Well, in 2009. Okay. Well, I was going to ask about the unemployment rate, but maybe that's… No, uh, no. The unemployment rate is fine. It, 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 the unemployment rate will affect what the Federal Reserve does. If the unemployment rate falls faster for longer, the Federal Reserve will raise rates higher, which will surprise the market to the upside, which I think would be a negative for the market. So I think the market probably wants a slightly weaker – it wants a number about in line with expectations. It's kind of a – it does not want a very weak number. It doesn't want a very, very strong number. But if it's around what it's expecting – uh, that's what the market is effectively anticipating. Okay, 170,000 new jobs at the, before the bell tomorrow. Right. I know, because people right. are going to look at this headline. And they're right. If that to... number comes in very strong, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I My anticipation is the market would react negatively uh, to that. Okay. Okay. All right, interesting. So, right. That, again, it would be a, a counter indicator because then. Because if, if it comes in too strong, the expectation is the Federal Reserve will raise rates quicker. For, what the market wants is a nice recovery of earnings and interest rates to stay low. And that's kind of what it's anticipating. Earnings to recover and interest rates to stay low. If the number comes in much higher than expected, interest rates are going to go higher for faster, and uh, that's going to be negative for stock prices. Okay. If it comes in too low for it than expected, it's going to come to the conclusion that earnings are not going to be growing as quickly as, as anticipated, and that's negative for the market. Right. So once this Goldilocks range uh, slightly higher than expected, but not massively higher than expected, because that will keep interest rates row low. It'll keep the earnings recovery occurring, which will be beneficial for the market. Okay, and it'll see a strong labor market. It's still, in, in, still strong labor market, et cetera. Right, okay. Oh, good. Uh, if you're listening to The Steady Investor right now and you'd like to speak to Mitch Zacks, if you have a question about your uh, individual finances or something uh, maybe a little bit more macro that's on your mind, you can call this number and speak to him directly, 866 472 5790 voiceamerica.com's got an excellent system that can set us up and put you right on the air with us uh, in real time and talk to Mitch Sachs uh, about whatever it is as long as it's market related I believe or investment related uh, that Mitch will be willing uh, to uh, to answer for you now Mitch you also made mention of the title of the most recent yep. Mitch on the markets uh, article which is on Zach's investment management uh, webpage um, 
and it's called Investor's Worst Enemy, Too Much Information. Um, and you talk about a little bit in the beginning, behavioral finance. Right. Uh, and, and this is known as confirmation bias. This is the, the too much information aspect of uh, – let me, let me start. Sure, sure. Confirmation bias is that when you have a view of the market or you have a view of what's going to happen, you tend – and you're then presented with new data. Mm-hmm. and say 50% of the data is against your view and 50% of the data is for your view, you latch on to the data that is for your view. So if you believe the market is undervalued and you really that is your view and you're given data that is sort of neutral, you tend to look for data that confirms uh, what, your, what your initial view is. Okay. So investors who are sort of bearish will tend to look at negative information and sort of raise that negative information up, and they'll tend to discount the positive information that's materializing. Okay. Same. It happens also less with uh, bullish investors because we were just all sort of hardwired to focus on negative information. That if there's if there's negative information, it causes people to pay attention. It causes uh, newsletters to make more sales. It causes uh, news uh, television shows to get a greater audience. Mm-hmm. It causes uh, news, newspaper writers to get more readers. It causes more people to read the article. The more negative or alarming the information is, the more likely people are want to consume that information. Right. Whereas if the information is sort of like, well, yes, there's some negative things happening, but the market tends to trend up over time. Uh, this time is no different than what it's been like over the last 40 years. Ignore the negative information, just like you ignored the negative information in 1985, in 1995, in 2000, in 2003, in 1998. You just ignore the negative information. You stay along the market over time. Mm-hmm. So yes, this is happening with the political system. And yes, this is happening in China. And yes, this is Brexit. Yes, these are strange things. They're unusual. They're negative for the market. If you ignore it, you'll do exactly what's happened historically when also negative things happened and you ignored it. That does not uh, play very well, and there aren't going to be a lot of people consuming that message. So there's a tendency for negative information to be more widely publicized, for investors to be more attuned uh, to negative information. And it makes sense. I mean, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in a group of people in the savannah and someone starts saying, I see a lion over there, you pay attention to it. Yeah. If someone says, you know, the lions rarely attack. And when they attack, they only kill, uh, they, they kill one person out of 200 and they'll keep attacking and you, there's nothing you can do to prevent them to attack. Let's just have lunch. <laughs> people will say, that's ridiculous. I, tell me when the lion's coming. Where's the lion? Right? So that is sort of the nature of human psychology is that everyone is looking for the lion to attack instead of statistically analyzing that when the line attacks come and what the real damage is over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And the history of the markets is really the triumph of the optimist, which says that you can't be constantly, you're constantly worried about the line attacks. You never stay invested and you never make your returns over time. Right. And on the same side of that, on the other side of that same coin, though, when corporate and economic fundamentals are strong, this information tends to get shortchanged. It, it, I don't think it does get short. I, I've never, I, there's a old, uh, there's a newsletter writer, James Grant, and he wrote an interesting book that I read, you know, 20 years ago called The Trouble with Prosperity. And it was a detailed, articulate discussion of the problems that we're facing in the United States. I believe it was in 1996. It was all about how Japan was growing. Japan is buying Rockefeller Center. Everyone at Yale is learning Japanese. All these things are happening. The world is coming to an end. And 
I'm thinking of this. This was written in 1996. There was another great book uh, written by a, a gentleman who writes newsletters and looks at, uh, yeah, has the cyclical theory of the markets. And it was called Conquer the Crash. And I think that came about in like after 2000, 2001, 2002. After the tech and bubble. Both of these books are very well written. They're well articulated. Uh, the Trouble with Prosperity, much better than Conquer the Crash. But it, it, it is an articulate explanation of why the economy is going to face headwinds. And it is, it is, it, after you read it, you start to think, well, maybe there is something here. And in each instance, the market just kept going higher, the economy just kept going higher. Mm-hmm. As long as, and that's kind of the history of the US equity markets. Right. Every year, every five years, every bear market, there is a, a increase in the amount of literature about how the market is doomed, how the American economy is doomed, how our way of life is under pressure, how the future will not look like the past. And at some point in time, perhaps it it will be true, uh, but I don't think it's at any point in time over the next 50 uh, 50 to 75 years. You really are at at a, uh, you're in a situation where you're having economic expansion. You have this tremendous things occurring. You have globalization occurring. You have technological change that's occurring. You have a massive reduction in energy prices. You have a growth in the labor market over time. All of this is, is very, very positive. And over long periods of time, I think the future is going to look like the past. And I don't think that what we're facing right now is inherently any different than what happened in the 60s, the 70s, the 50s, the 40s, the 80s, the 90s, or the noughts, essentially. And as soon as you can understand that, you can adopt the philosophy of trying to invest in the market and trying to stay invested in the market over long periods of time. Know that corrections will happen, bear markets will happen, crashes will absolutely happen. And in the case of all these events, the correct course of action is to try and stay the course. Right. And we've talked about this before, but it's, I think it's very important uh, to make sure that investors understand this. When you see a pullback in the market, it could be a rather drastic one compared it, to no, the- No, it could be drastic. It could last for several years. It could be right. two or three years. You could think the world is coming to an end. You could get very psychologically upset with the uh, downward volatility of the market. But the history of the market is that over time, the market trends up. And the key to this, the key to this is to remain diversified. If you only own master limited partnerships and master limited partnerships go down 50%, you may be in a situation where there's something structurally changing with the master limited partnerships, they are not recovering. And it's possible that that, that it's just an overreaction and the master limited partnerships will recover. So you don't, if you're not diversified, you have no guarantee that over long periods of time, you're going to see a reversal of the pullback. If you only own tech stocks and it's 2000, there's no guarantee that these things are so overpriced that they're going to rebound and come back. But if you own the market and your exposure is similar to the sector exposure of the U.S. economy and the U.S. market, you are, I don't want to say guaranteed, but there's a very, very high likelihood that pullbacks are reversed. So if you own only finance companies, and it's 2008, and you're down. Are, is finance going to recover? You, you you don't know. Right. 
But if you own the economy as a whole, you know that historically the economy has an ability and an, an amazing ability to deal with a uh, – with, 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 with negative externalities, to, to deal with stress on the economy. They're able to deal with it and grow forward. And that's the key to investing. It's to invest over the long haul, but to realize you have to remain diversified across sectors and types of stocks, or else when the market sells off, you have no guarantee it's going to recover. Good. Let's stop there for a second. We'll take another short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. Thanks for being with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zats.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zats.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to See Gaitan at Zax.com. Now, back to the show. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is the third segment. Here we're talking with Mitch Sachs, portfolio manager and founding principal at Zax Investment Management. It's also Groundhog Day, by the way, Mitch. I don't oh, really? know if you remembered that. Yeah, sure. So, did, um, did the, did the, the, the rodent see its shadow or well, not? Well, you know, with all the spotlights on it, I right. don't see how it could possibly not see its shadow. If it shadow. sees its shadow, it, it, what is it? That winter six more weeks, six of, more winter. weeks of winter. And if you look at a calendar, it looks like there's six more weeks of winter. So, it doesn't look like winter outside, I have to say. I mean, it doesn't I mean, look we started, like it. We started it's the, a little the, chilly, right, though. It's a little chilly. Okay. Uh, I wanted to also, before we get into our last segment here, yes. uh, discussing things, uh, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, uh, the listeners of Steady Investor can call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago at 800-918-3114. You can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, for more information, email us at info at zimwealth.com or visit us online, zimwealth.com. Uh, I also think, Mark, that we, we do have uh, various research reports in terms of our market outlook, both for the economy and the market. And we're very happy to uh, share those with, uh, with with anyone who would like that, to. That's right. I, I was just going to say that. A too. lot of it's available online. Uh, some people don't download it for whatever reason. 
and if they want a copy of our uh, either economic outlook, which is updated on a monthly basis, right. or our uh, sort of strategy outlook, which is where uh, John Blank sees the market heading, mm-hmm. uh, both of those, and, and John Blank's, you know, very uh, reasonably good, a good economist, <laughs> has a PhD, uh, he knows, he knows MIT, he knows some stuff that's going on, and, and it's his outlook on the market. Uh, which sometimes differs from other people's outlook, uh, but both those reports are available for people who are looking. That's them. right, and he tends to come out with them right after the the big jobs number, which is right. coming out tomorrow. He's so. focused on the macroeconomic data. Exactly, right. exactly. So, but okay. it's a very comprehensive, it's an excellent piece. Yes. Uh, we'll send you a free uh, stock market outlook if you call that same number, 800-918-3114. Okay, uh, that's, that's that. Um, now, we were talking about staying long, with a diversified portfolio as being the key to a su- being My, a successful investor. The best investor. way I can explain this is put it in terms people know. That they a lot of people's investment, one of their largest investment is their, their house. And if you bought the house in a suburb of Detroit, the house has gone down in value. And if you bought the house in Manhattan, the house has gone up in value. Right. And so you only know the, the value change of that of that house that the, the person owns. But if you if you are invested in Detroit real estate and you see it going down and down and down, the question is, well, is this going to recover? And it's possible it won't. It's possible there's some sort of structural change occurring. Detroit's not coming back. It's going to be a burned out city for many years, for longer than people are anticipating. You're speaking hypothetically, Hypothetically, by the way. right? And it's possible that uh, Manhattan real estate is going to continue to appreciate as more and more people want to get into a, a smaller and smaller supply of area. But if, you, if you're diversified and you own a little bit of Detroit real estate, a little bit of Manhattan real estate, a little bit of Texas real estate, a little bit of California real estate, a little bit of real estate in Nebraska, what will happen is that in aggregate, as the population increases, mm-hmm. you're going to see a general rise in real estate prices probably in line with inflation over time. Now, you might not benefit as much as if you own Manhattan real estate. You might not get hit as hard as if you own Detroit real estate. But in in aggregate, when you have a pullback, if you own a diversified portfolio, you can then react to that pullback in a much better way. The same thing is in the stock market. If you own only certain types of stocks, you only own mining companies and the mining and everything falls together with the market. Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee those mining companies are going to come back as strong as the market. But if you own the market in its entirety, when the market sells off, you have a high degree of confidence that it will eventually recover over time. And nowhere did we see that. In, we saw that in 2000. Mm-hmm. You saw that in 2009. If in 2000 you were overly focused or overly weighted in technology companies, and the technology companies go down farther than the market, you're in a snit. You can't decide whether you they're going to come back, whether this is an overreaction, whether it's a bubble, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If instead you own the market and your exposure to technology is about what it is in the S&P 500, which is 20%, and your risk characteristics are similar to the larger cap, uh, less speculative companies in the S&P 500, you do much better. And in those periods of time, if you look at our historical returns, we have done extremely well in periods of stress in the marketplace because we always try and focus on being as diversified as we possibly can be. It's just any way to, to kind of mitigate risk in a general sense. It, it, it mitigates risk, but it allows you psychologically to make a decision with the pullback. Otherwise, if you're sitting there and you're holding uh, gold mining companies or you're holding an over over estimate, over weighting in, uh, in finance companies, and mm-hmm. it's 2008, 
it's very hard to look at the world and say, well, do I sell or buy AIG at this point in time? Right. It is much better to say, listen, I want to own some finance companies, but I want my diversification in finance to be in keeping with my benchmark. So I'm not over or underweighted in with them. Okay. So I know that finance comes under pressure. The other sectors of the economy will, will grow as well. And I have a very, very strong belief that in aggregate, the component stocks of the S&P 500, the component stocks of the U.S. equity markets will appreciate over long periods of time with these pullbacks. And that is really the key to generating wealth in the equity markets. It's, it's, it's the ability to take a diversified portfolio and keep that diversified portfolio over long, long periods of time. Yeah, periods of time. That seems to be a main a key it, it, to that as well. Time. It, it's, it, it's the length of time you stay invested. And if you can stay invested for a longer period of time, you're going to make a much higher level of return. And the reason is it's the effect of compounding. If right. you're generating at a 7%, an 8%, a 9% level, these are huge differences from an investment management standpoint. Right. We've been able to generate returns higher than the market. We've been able to grow the firm from $50 million to $5 billion. If you're generating returns lower than the market, the, you, the firm does not grow it. It gets smaller. But these decisions, the, the ability to generate excess return pales in comparison to the ability to stay invested in the market over long periods of time. Instead of timing it, trying to sell at one yeah, point the, and buy the, in. The, the difference between a 7% uh rate of return and a 9% rate of return is in one period of time with the 9%, it will take you eight years to double your assets. If the 7% of return, it will take you 10 years. Now over a 20 year period, that's 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 great. The seven, the 10%, you, you, you've almost gone through three of them. And at the te- at the, uh, the lower rate, the 7% rate of return, you've gone through two. At the 10%, you've gone through almost uh, three of them, of these doubling periods. Right. But the key is that if you're generating at seven, at nine, at 10, at eight, if you simply stay invested and compound that return over time, you can generate real wealth. And we know that that's possible to occur. And we also know that over that period, you're gonna have corrections, market uh, crashes, uh, bear markets that occur. And if you can ignore that fluctuation, when the bear market occurs, when the correction occurs, and continue to hold because you have belief in the power of the U.S. equity market to appreciate at the seven to nine percent annualized rate of return, you can generate real wealth for you over time. Right, and that goes right to the name of this program, which is the Steady Investor. Stay right. steady. Keep your mind steady about it, and uh, you'll do just fine. Uh, listen, Mitch, we have an email that came in okay. from Angela from Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. And I'm going to read it uh, over here, and then you can answer it as you see fit. Uh, Mitch, I've seen a lot in the financial news that Trump's presidency is going to affect certain parts of the market. For example, I've read that industrials and defense stocks should do better since Trump is going to expand spending in those areas. It's making me wonder if my portfolio needs to undergo some drastic changes for the new year. Can you summarize all the changes investors should make in light of the Trump presidency? All of them or some of them? Let's start with some. Okay. The first thing to realize is that when you see something in the news, especially in the popular news or the widely distributed news media, it is already reflected in the market. So anything you're reading in the newspaper is already reflected in the market. Traders have already They've acted already on acted on it. Everything you're seeing in the Wall Street Journal is already reflected in the market. There was an old famous hedge fund manager I knew, and he used to cause all his traders to only, he would say the only paper they're allowed to read is the National Enquirer. Because if they read another paper, what would happen is the, the news that they would take in would just cause them to react in a way that was not beneficial to the portfolio. 
because they're reacting to the news. So in Wall Street, what happens is the news is reflected in the market. You buy the rumor when you think something is happening. And actually, when the actual event occurs, it is effectively sold in the marketplace. And we see that. The fact that Trump is going to help defense stocks is in the pricing of defense stocks at this point in time. Okay. The only question is, is the new administration going to help defense stocks greater or less than what people are currently expecting? Right. How right. right so, or so wrong? Not, not is it going to help defense stocks. Everyone knows it's going to help defense stocks. How, is it going to be greater or less than what people are expecting? That's the only question. And what the market is able to do is it gets its expectation so in aggregate, over periods of time, its expectation is a very, very good estimate of what is going to happen. And there's a you range. Know, and there's pricing. a range. People are betting with billions of dollars on the price of Lockheed Martin. Right. And these are people who are extraordinarily sophisticated, know in depth, in detail, how the Pentagon budget may be altered by a new administration. Now- Maybe these people are so focused on the Pentagon budget, they're not worried about a geopolitical event. And if the geopolitical event occurs, everyone's going to estimate that the defense spending is going to increase. Mm-hmm. You think the geopolitical event is occurring. The market is also doing that. It's, it's discounting all these events occurring. It's discounting them through everyone voting with their dollars. And as a result, the question is not, is Trump going to decrease regulation? Is he going to increase uh, infrastructure spending? Is he going to increase defense spending? Is he going to cause interest rates to go up? It's the question is, what is the market currently anticipating? And are those expectations going to be met or disappointed? So the key question of whether you buy defense stocks because of a Trump administration comes down to whether the it's going to be greater than what you expect Trump to do. And that gets into this risk that I see with the marketplace. The market is expecting this to happen, expecting that to happen, expecting this to happen. But the presidency seems very chaotic and uncertain. And it's possible there are misestimating what can really occur. And when the market messes up the most with its expectations, is sort of missing the forest for the trees. It's very good at looking at the detailed information relating to individual companies. How much in the defense budget is there going to be a change in defense spending? As soon as there's a whiff that that defense budget is going to change and it's going to help General Dynamics more than Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics stock, that information leaks out and General Dynamics stock starts to increase. Okay. Where it misses are the large events that are somewhat unpredictable that people are not focusing on. There's a bubble developing in the technology sector. There is a crisis occurring in Asia. There is a uh, you know, destruction of the, due to collateralized mortgage obligations, right? right? So it's the large events that result in massive structural changes that the market tends uh, to effectively miss because of the confirmation bias. Everyone is sitting there analyzing the world the way they have been over the last 10 years. Now, over time, that tends to be the case, but it's very, very hard to say we are at a turning point, a tipping point. There's something strange occurring in the economy, and it's going to be very, very different 10 years from now uh, than 10 years hence. Because historically, the bet that has always worked is to say that the future has looked like the past, with the exception of the details have changed. 
Okay. Wars have changed. The disruptions have changed. The the political issues have changed. The protesting in 1960 is now protesting in 2016, and it changes. But the society as a whole, the economy as a whole, continues this progressive march towards growth of the economy over time because that's the natural state of the economy. So what I would say is that you should discount anything you read in the news, and you certainly should not be reacting uh, to Trump's win by buying more technology stocks. What you should be doing is looking at the technology stocks, looking at the earnings estimates for those technology stocks, mm-hmm. and seeing if those earnings estimates are being revised upward or downward. Right. If those earnings estimates are being revised upward, I would say it's a good idea to overweight those technology stocks. If those earnings estimates are being revised downward, I would say it's a good good idea to be uh, reducing weight in the technology stocks. You don't want to try and say, well, we see this information, and as a result, the earnings estimates are going to have to move up because Trump is elected. The analysts have already reacted to that. Right. They're going to move their earnings estimates up as soon as they start getting information that Lockheed Martin's share of the budget is going to be higher because the people in the administration like the defense products that Lockheed Martin is creating. Okay. I think we'd have to end it there okay. then, Mitch. Uh, another good program. Um, this has been the Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. Uh, We hope you'll join us again next week. I'm Mark Vickery with Mitch Zach's, and so long. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zach's and Mark Vickery for another edition of the Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 